In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Losing a loved one to suicide can be devastating and paralyzing. Others are motivated to find out why. When the why was identified as a Zoloft-induced suicide, Kim Witzak's journey migrated from a career in advertising to become a drug safety advocate and consumer representative on an FDA drug advisory committee. On today's podcast, we welcome Kim Witzak to share her story. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. McFillin. And I'm very appreciative of the number of followers that I've received, as well as the very interesting discussion that comes with the comments. You read the comments? I, I try my best, and this is my point here. Okay. Um, you know, there's a number of people who are, uh, you know, asking for, you know, continued dialogue. And it's just very difficult and challenging to do that on Twitter. Number one, I'm, I'm quite busy. And I also think there's just nuance and complexity to many of the topics that I am posting about. And I understand that for people who, um, you know, are reading some of these tweets and it can be somewhat upsetting because it's outside of maybe a narrative or what they were taught to believe or what they grew up believing, it can be somewhat upsetting. So I want to recognize that. And that's why I think it is so important to direct people to more complex and nuanced discussion with other experts as well as our team here. And that's the purpose of our podcast and the purpose of our guest today. We are honored to have Kim Wizak, who is a leading global drug safety advocate and speaker with over 25 years of professional experience in advocacy, advertising, and marketing communications. She is currently a very vocal consumer representative on the FDA advisory committee which is evaluating new drugs as they come to market. We are fascinated to get into some in-depth conversations about information that many people out there in the American and, and global uh, marketplace don't really fully understand. Kim, uh, thank you so much for, for being a guest. Ah, well, thank you so much for having me. I've been following you for a long time on Twitter, so it's finally actually nice to have a conversation um, and actually see the, the person behind the, the Twitter account. So, um, and so I was honored when you asked, but I also love the name of your podcast, Radically Genuine Conversations, um, because I think that is one thing that has been missing out there in the world right now is that we're afraid to have um, conver genuine conversations, but also radically genuine, like real conversations. Where are we really feeling? How do we really feel? Um, and, you know, as we know, we live in the land of censoring. So um, I appreciate uh, you inviting me to be a guest. Well, you're definitely a radically genuine person. And, um, you know, it's, it's very clear from following your work that this is a purpose and a mission. But it unfortunately arose from such tragedy and adverse circumstances. For those of you 
out there who are unaware of, of Kim's story, uh, Kim, would you be willing to talk to us about what you've been through and how you've gotten to this place in your career? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I'd like to call myself the accidental advocate because I never in a million years set out to do this work. Uh, sometimes life chooses your purpose. And this was one where I was given this purpose. And it didn't come from um, a good place, actually. So in over 19 years ago, on August 6, 2003, my life came to a complete halt, the life that I had known. Um, I was married to my husband for almost 10 years. His name was Woody. I got a call on August 6, 2003 from my dad telling me that my husband um, was found hanging from the rafters of our garage, dead at age 37. And Woody wasn't depressed, which is what the first thing you would think about when you hear suicide, right? And he was not depressed. He had just started his dream job with a startup company and was having trouble sleeping. And he was a guy that always needed eight hours of sleep. I mean, I've known him that his whole thing was sleep. And so he went and saw his um, GP, um, his doctor that he's seen for years, and, you know, because he was having trouble sleeping. And he was sent home with a three-week three sample pack of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. And it was told to him it would take the edge off and help him sleep. And meanwhile, I was out of the, you know, back then, this was 2003, I was out of the country when he first got put on this drug. I was in New Zealand on an advertising um, uh, shoot, which is my background. And so I wasn't there the first three weeks he was on the drug. And the first... Um, you know, the three-week sample pack automatically doubled the dose after week one. And and I'll never forget, you know, he, meanwhile, I'm having the time of my life, Woods sitting here in Minneapolis, and I was excited. I, I finally was home from my trip, and I'll never forget Woody walked through our back door completely in his blue dress shirt, sweat through it, dropped his bag on the floor, and fell to um, a fetal position on our kitchen floor. And he's like, with his hands around his head, Kim, you got to help me. I don't know what's happening to me. It's like my head's outside my body looking in. And he's bawling and he's like rocking back and forth. And I remember just looking at him because I have never seen this behavior in a million years. So we calmed him down. I'm like, did yoga breathing, um, praying, and eventually got him, you know, um, to call the doctor and tell him what was happening, like this head outside the body. And the doctor said, oh, well, you got to give the, you know, the, you got to give the drug four to six weeks to kick in. And so every night, the next week of Woody's life, he would come home and say, what do you think about hypnosis? I'm going to beat this feeling in my head. Then he'd be like, what do you think about acupuncture? I'm going to beat this feeling in my head. And I remember I even suggested, maybe you quit this job. Like maybe, you know, you're not cut out for, you know, this startup company. I mean, we were looking at all these ways of trying to beat this feeling in his head. Uh, so I go out of town um, on another shoot and I, um, uh, the next week, so it's now five weeks. And I hadn't heard from him all day. So I'm like, that's so weird because we talked all the time. I call my dad. I'm like, do me a favor. You know, Woody's having trouble sleeping. Can you go over and check on our house? And that's when I got the call um, telling me that he was dead. And I remember like sitting there going, what do you mean dead? I'm like, how do you know he's dead? And he's like, he's hanging. I'm like, hanging. So literally in that one phone call, and I say it all the time, we are all one phone call away from our lives forever changing. 
um, and throwing us on another path. And, and that was my pivot point, obviously a pretty tragic one. And I will never forget that night. Um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how I'm getting back home from Minneapolis, but uh, to Minneapolis. But that night, the coroner asked me one question. She called and asked if Woody was on any medication. And I was like, uh, yeah, I don't know the name. You know, I couldn't remember the name. And she goes, oh, there's a bottle of Zoloft sitting here on the kitchen counter. And I'm like, yeah, that's it. And that was the only thing he was taking. And she told us, um, she goes, we're going to take it with us. It might have something to do with his death. And so that was kind of clue number one. And funny, the clue number two was the front page of our Minneapolis newspaper had an article that said, the UK finds link between antidepressants and suicide in teens. That was the exact same day those two um, things happened on August 6, 2003. And to this day, you know, I remember even when I moved out of my house, when I talked all the time, we always left notes for each other when we traveled and there was no note. And that was his note because that became those two clues. And then this drive became what started my mission because back then there were no black box suicide warnings on or anything. Kim, I think the, the question that I have is a primary care physician prescribing an SSRI for sleep. Was or is Zoloft an approved medication for somebody who is struggling for sleep with sleep? No, it is. It is not approved for insomnia, which is what his diagnosis was that the GP gave it to him. And, you know, ever since then, you know, I've learned a lot about these drugs, but, you know, I found that that's very common practice, you know, that these serious mind altering drugs, it's a, you know, there's a business reason you go to the GPs. It's easy. That's where the people are, you know, people like Woody, the unsuspecting public, you know, the person who just went, you know, I always, Woody trusted his doctor. He saw his doctor because they put him, you know, he had this faith in the doctor because he was a big athlete and, you know, the doctors put him back. You know, I always called him Humpty Dumpty, you know, they always fixed him and he's back out and, and doing sports again. And so I think there was just this automatic built in inherent trust that comes you know, with a lot of us that go to our family physicians, our GPs that we've, tr you know, that we see, I mean, that's our first line into usually our first line into going and getting on any healthcare um, conversation. Yeah. It, it begs the question here, because I think the recent statistic that I saw that approximately 80% of psychiatric drugs are now being prescribed in primary care centers. So that's including you know, physician assistants and nurse practitioners as well as the primary care physicians. How are they trained or how have they developed competencies to be able to assess and prescribe these drugs? Where are they getting the information? Well, you know, it was interesting to me once I got into this work and, you know, basically had to uncover all of this, um, that I was shocked that, that pharmaceutical companies are really the ones, 
leading um, med schools, right? There's so much influence on the pharma um, companies um, in, in med schools. I was shocked that in the med schools, they don't learn about how the FDA works or they don't get the background. And so if you don't learn how the FDA approval process works, you don't even know the questions that you don't know. Then, you know, and you don't know, like, what are the critical thinking? Like, what is ghostwriting? I think there should be an entire course on what is ghostwriting? What is the ugly side of medicine? So that they can start being critical thinkers and asking. But if you're being educated by pharmaceutical companies, and these doctors are, um, then that is where they're learning their information. And, you know, when you have five, the short little visit with your GP, and then you realize that a lot of those screening tools that they use at the doctor's office, I know pretty much system-wide here in Minnesota, it's called the PHQ-9 screening form. And it is, um, you know, it's the one that says in the last two weeks, have you felt sad? Have you ate too much? Have you felt less than worthy? Like, and it's yes, no, and one to through five or something. And they give it at every, like, visit, like at a pediatrician, at a gynecologist, your GP office, they give it as the, in, in, it's kind of the starting point of a mental health conversation, right? But nobody actually looks at the very bottom where it said, a generous donation by Pfizer Inc. and three doctors. And I remember asking my doctor, do you know anybody about, do you know anything about these doctors? She goes, no. And I'm like, all right, well, they're key opinion leaders. And she's like, what's that? Again, one of those things that I say as our GPs, they are not, there should be an entire section in the medical course that is all these ugly side of medicine. Otherwise, they're just being educated by pharma. Let me plug our last podcast. We just reposted a episode, earlier episode from the Radically Genuine podcast on do antidepressants even work? And we administered Sean, my brother here, the PHQ-9. And at that time he had a one-year-old yeah, and he obviously screened for depression based on how he answered just a few of those items. So it was, for, it was important for us to communicate to the audience how easy it is to be labeled with a psychiatric condition, which undoubtedly is about increasing the sale of pharmaceutical drugs. You made so many important, important points there, but I want some uh, just clarification. You mentioned this idea of, of ghostwriting. Um, could you explain to our audience what ghostwriting actually is? Sure. Uh, so again, another concept that I learned, um, because I did have a lawsuit against Pfizer. And one of the things we got out of it was, um, all these documents that showed, um, this concept of, it's basically written by pharma and their, um, and their, you know, their company, um, resources. And then they go find a doctor to put their name to it. So it actually, and then it gets published and, but it looks like it's actually the doctor whose name is, um, you know, who wrote the study, but it was actually Pfizer and their, um, you know, their companies that put it together. So one of the documents that we got out from um, under seal in the lawsuit was an entire publication plan for social anxiety disorder. So it had all the publications that were, they knew exactly when they were going to run, what the dates were, um, but there were a couple that still said Dr. TBD. Mm. Dr. TBD. And I was like, Dr. TBD, who's that? Like that guy must be really famous because it was Dr. TBD, <laughs> Dr. TBD. And that's because they had not figured out 
who the Dr. TBD was. So that concept of ghostwriting, you know, I didn't realize how prevalent um, it really of a practice it really is. And so that in itself makes is another thing that I think a doctor who's sitting around like looks at these studies, you know, could you go and do some research? Who are these people? Where do they get their funds? You know, I know there's been um, there's ways to see who it was and if they're if they have ties to pharmaceutical industries. But a lot of them you don't find out. I mean, it's just um, it's a, a practice. Hey, Kim, um, I'm curious with your with your marketing and advertising background, um, when I, I worked in that space also, and if we ever ran something in a magazine that was more editorial in nature, we would often have to put a disclaimer at the top that says branded content because it would be paid placement, but it looked like it was content within a magazine. Why do pharmaceutical companies get around this in terms of being able to publish something in a journal that they've clearly written themselves? And then they slap the name of a doctor to the end of it. Why wouldn't that be considered the same type of branded content? Because it's basically advertising. Uh, I love that idea because I know exactly what you're talking about. Those advertorials yes. is what you know we call them in the ad space. Um, that is basically a promotional material, right? That has been written by the company. But I think it's just such a common practice that um, the physicians have not learned to even know what a, the ghostwriting is. So, and of course, you know, a lot of these things, we don't know that it's just that some of these, um, like legal lawsuits and why, because it is a form of marketing. All that is, is marketing. Right. And, you know, I have always said, um, drug companies are amazing marketers. Mm -hmm. You did, uh, sue Pfizer after this, uh, tragic event, correct? I did have a, yep. A wrongful death failure to warn. And, and you just mentioned some of the things you learned from that lawsuit. Are you able to uh, speak about some of the other things that were revealed from that lawsuit? Sure. Yeah, I can. Uh, it's funny. This is my binder. I call it my big black binder. My Because um, these are all the documents or some of them that we got out from under seal. That we um, I used this binder. I hand delivered it to the FDA. I hand delivered it. Um, uh, to members of Congress, the media, anybody who would listen, because there's a lot of stuff in here, like things. Um, there was a document that I love to call. Um, it's like my favorite, well, favorite in a you know tragic way. But when I was telling you Woody talked about head outside his body, they had um, the uh, South African equivalent to the FDA who wrote to the chief medical officer of Zoloft who said they have patients on 50 milligrams who are describing standing outside their bodies looking in. Exactly what Woody said. And what did they write back? Oh, wrote um, Pfizer wrote back, oh, that happens on all SSRIs. We don't know why. And I'm like, and you're not going to warn? Like, are you kidding me? That's exactly what Woody said. Then there were things in there. Um, another document was um, uh, the... Why was Pfizer helping write a prosecutor manual to help with the Zoloft defense um, in any kind of violence and suicide? Like, I have to say, aren't you a drug company? Why are you like, why are you helping in these? And that was from the um, in the 90s. That's another one. Um, another one would be where Pfizer wrote an entire article. And this one will speak to what we were talking about earlier with the GPs 
they wrote an entire article talking about like if a person gets akathisia, which is that inter, you know extreme internal restlessness, uh, that a person, quote unquote, their words, not mine, death can be a welcome result. But so that article was published in a normal like journal, but it was this, it was the letter that went to the sales staff, um, the field staff, and said the attached journal article is not suitable for um, neurolo- or for general practitioners, but would be for neurologically inclined psychiatrists, and that's because they knew eighty percent of their business is going to go to GPs. So you don't want to tell somebody about what akathisia is. So eventually, you know, we used all these documents to help get black box um, suicide warnings. But I mean, you see these documents, it's not my words. It's their, you know, I have the story, unfortunately, but these are black and white, their words, not mine. And even to see the FDA, like Germany, I didn't know that, um, and did Prozac was never approved for two reasons initially, lack of efficacy and risk of suicide. That was in the 80s. Well, I... And eventually it did get approved, but, well, you know, I mean, that's hard to see. First of all, this is, this is chilling because, you know, I've always said that these large pharmaceutical companies are the largest criminal organizations in the world because this is chilling sociopathic behavior. They are hiding and have hidden uh, side effects and effects, adverse effects of these drugs that are deadly. And, um, you know, when you go back to, uh, we're going to get into the FDA approval because um, I don't want to jump, jump ahead. Um, but I, I think we, we have to inform the listeners of some things that are absolute facts and they're undeniable. The risk of suicide on antidepressants uh, is underestimated by most medical professionals. Um, what can you tell us uh, about what is known about antidepressant use and the risk of becoming suicidal? Well, what wasn't known, I should say, back in the day. So I didn't know, and I would say a lot of people weren't probably aware that the FDA first held hearings back in 91 when it was just Prozac on the market. And basically the advisory board reviewed, and it was all about, is there a link between risk, um, violence and suicide? And all these families came forward, told their stories. Every one of the advisory board members took money from pharma. And when it came time to vote, they all voted, nope, we don't see any link. Nope, nope. So eventually um, in 2004, there were more hearings and the hearings came out because um, at the FDA for kids. And then in 2006, warnings eventually got added to young adults. But there have been healthy volunteer studies where one out of four persons became agitated and some had suicidal thinking. Uh, The side effect that they kept from um, the public uh, was akathisia, which akathisia is a precursor and can be a precursor to suicide. Um, we know from the lawsuits that there have been a lot of the initial clinical trials that were done, where nine out of the 13 of them, but in the FDA, you only have to show, you know, you bring a couple forward, but that um, the, uh, the drug placebo outperformed the drug. 
So there's been claims of the efficacy, the suicide. And, you know, we've been saying it for a long time, but it was nice to finally get it validated this year by the two studies, one being in the British Medical Journal, looking at just all the efficacy and then having the, um, the whole concept of chemical imbalance um, theory, which has really been a marketing claim and got really deeply ingrained in society and doctors and psychiatry and, and also to a point where the people, the public, you and I um, believed it too, because it was just, you know, it's been the theory that is why I'm feeling sad or I'm down. Kim, may I ask a personal question? Um, you, your husband passed away. You're young. You had a career. And then you start going down this path of investigating this area and uncovering all these things that many people aren't aware of. Was there anybody along the way that tried to dissuade you or, or think you were losing your mind? Um, and how did you stay motivated and what type of support system did you have around you to keep moving forward? Uh, well, that's a good question. I call it now the original um, misinformation campaign that was done <laughs> back then, which I have to say, it's really fun. You know, we were completely, um, you know, at the time, though, there were a lot of people, families that we actually started working with that had the same experience. Okay. And in a deep, literally, I remember after would die crying in the basement after a funeral, like, literally trying to rip my heart out because it hurt so bad. And I remember saying, God, take my pain and use it. Take my pain and use it. It does me no good. I had no idea what that meant, but I was just like, oh my God, get it out of me. So for people who are suffering, it's real. I mean, that's a real pain. Um, it felt physical. There were a lot of people, including um, family members, you know, that were like, I don't know, you're going up against Pfizer, you know, you're going up against this. But I literally believed in every part of my body that this is what happened. There's no way that Woody, this guy who loved life, we just booked all our trips. Like we we're just, he was in the prime. Like there's no way he would have just like went and killed himself. Mm -hmm. And because he wasn't, he had no history of depression. So it was just something that I didn't care because at the end of the day, and then once I started seeing some of these documents, I'm like, it's too late for our family. We already know. But if I can do whatever I can do to make sure that no other family it was like us, um, that was completely blindsided, trusted, and fell into the system. So that's really why. Um, and truthfully, I think the idea of being able to do something with my um, grief and, um, you know, I didn't have kids. So this, I became what I threw myself into and it was part of my healing journey as well. And so I always say, when you take away the ability of people that have been harmed or injured or had something happen and you don't give them the ability to share their story, you're taking a part of their healing, um, opportunity away as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to talk about the FDA process. Can we jump into that, Raj? Yeah, I, I, there's, first of all, I, I just want to say that, I mean, that was very well said and, and, and emotional and, and powerful. I, I know personally, as, as I get older, um, mm -hmm. I begin 
to have a greater kind of a spiritual connection to something that's bigger. And you, you tend to ask questions about like, what is your purpose on, on this earth? Uh, what do you stand for? Who are you? And you exude that. I have no doubt you are, you are saving lives. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that uh, the, the tragedy and, and, and the pain, I'm sure, never goes away, but it transitions into something that um, allows your life to be very meaningful. And so I, I just appreciate you being on this, on this podcast and being able to share the story. I've got a question. You've, I, I know you've transitioned your, your career at this point, um, and you're a, a very vocal consumer re- representative on the FDA Advisory Committee evaluating new drugs. I, I, I want to just fact check something with you. I know a lot of our listeners and a lot of people out there believe that the FDA protects them, that it's, 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 um, its function in the American government is to communicate to the public that these drugs are both safe and they're effective. Mm-hmm. But I was just recently reading that Eli Lilly conducted 20 studies uh, initially to prove that the antidepressant effect of fluoxetine, which we call Prozac, uh, you know, was, was something that demonstrated uh, that it worked. But only three studies were ever submitted to the FDA approval uh, for, and could, because there were 17 that were outright failures. And I think you were just mentioning all the problems initially. Tell us about this FDA approval process. What do consumers out there, what do they need to know? Well, I was shocked because <laughs> I thought the FDA would really worked to protect us, right? I thought that was their role. But as I've gotten involved and done my advocacy, and, and now I sit on one of the committees. So I actually sit on the exact same committee that in 1991 when they were reviewing um, the Prozac, you know, and could have at that point put warnings on and didn't. I'm on that committee today. So I take my role really, really serious because I know that these decisions that we have or these conversations we're having around these new drugs that are coming to market um, really do uh, have a potential, you know, down the road. Like, I don't know what's going to happen because, you know, the, the system is really set up to get things approved. It's just an approval process. It's not really set we think it's about safety. Safety is an after fact. I mean, I see, see it all the time. I'm always talking about safety, like what's what it's going to look like in real world. You know, most people don't realize that these clinical trials for at least, you know, the psych drugs and the drugs that I'm reviewing, it's on a placebo, right? So it's a very controlled um, group. If, if you're even doing the um, traditional double-blinded placebo controlled Right now, most of the drugs that are coming on the market or coming to our committee are using um, accelerated pathways. So for like breakthrough therapy, for anything that's not, there is no other drug on the market. So now where you can keep finding diseases, like the one that we did was a Parkinson's psychosis, which is really um, uh, the dopamine drugs that are causing things with, you know, with Parkinson's. But there is no drug that's particularly for, you know, that's been approved for Parkinson's psychosis. So they were able to use a fast track, which means they only have to have one clinical study. And so the clinical studies where you think it's going to be like it's been tested on a lot of people and everything, the real world situation. No, that's not what happens. 
there it's against placebo, right? So we all know that a lot of these drugs, it's not, nobody's on just, I mean, those are the best case scenarios and you're under, you know, an investigator um, who's watching and a lot of times they're subjective, you know, so it's all set up to bring the best, um, you know, case study forward, just like I'm still in advertising and we're getting ready to try to get a campaign through and we're doing focus groups. You don't think we know how to stack the decks to get to show the best results because we want to produce this campaign. We're going to make sure that we have all the right elements. So when we do the focus groups, we bring the client the results we want. The same game is happening here. I see it all the time. Um, but it's just, it's a different way when I look at safety. And I think when we think of safety, uh, I always say, we don't know what safety is going to look like. So we should have, and they're always like, well, we'll look at safety. We'll like evaluate it down the road, but they don't, you know, like looking at, um, I know that's one of the things we're trying to work on with the FDA is there's all these new accelerated pathways and these drugs don't have mechanisms. There isn't a mechanism or safety net that in the end where they're actually doing the results, the real world, give us, show us now that this works. Mm-hmm. But, but once it's on the market, it's free for all. So Yeah, we just had Jim Gottstein on our previous episode. He released a book, Zyprexa Papers. And Zyprexa was $5 billion a year gross revenue. So where's the incentive for them to investigate long-term safety? I mean, they're, they're beholden to their shareholders. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you know that and you think about it, pharma's a business. I say healthcare is a business. And I think there's... That's the one thing I think I was completely naive. And most of the people that I meet who end up in places, you know, where I'm at, were naive to think that healthcare, they care about us as, you know, as patients. And I always say, you know, we have to, at the end of the day, it might not be right. My patient safety group doesn't like when I say it, but I'm like, we're customers. Mm. And when we think of ourselves as customers, it gives us a little bit you think about it a little bit differently, but you know, you go to the doctor, we want hope. We want, we want to be sold hope. We want hope. You know, we're quick to give away and not understanding there's this entire um, invisible spider web that's behind us that everybody's caught up in, but the people, the spider who's actually controlling it is, you know, industry. It's big money. So, so when these, the tragedy that happened, you know, to you, when these things come out and people start to tell these stories, what do, what do people say? Like with the FDA, do they, do they just say, well, it's not happening. These things aren't happening enough. Or are they saying it's anecdotal? Are they, why, you know, this is pretty powerful. Do they just dismiss them? Do they invalidate the stories? Well, it's funny. I'm looking at this button campaign that I actually, because I have this button always sitting on here. We created it um, after, um, it was right before one of the FDA advisory committees. And it says, we are not anecdotes. We matter. (laughs) So I remember when we went to the FDA and initially told these, and there were, you know, hundreds of people that showed up at these advisory committees. And they were like, oh, those are all anecdotes. I'm like, anecdotes? Like, what are you talking about? anecdotes. It's because they didn't happen in the double blinded placebo controlled study. So, and I said, well, you know what, that is true, you know, but all of these anecdotes are data points and data points need to be, when you start seeing a signal 
And it's why, you know, when I look at MedWatch and, you know, there's the VAERS report or the VAERS system for the vaccines, and then there's um, whatever the med medical device, um, you know, where people write in their um, their stories or if something happened, um, that should be a place of in curiosity and wanting to go and investigate. So if you start seeing these people that are having similar reactions, you should want to be curious and want to go and look further. But the truth is the same people that are approving the drugs are the same people who are reviewing um, the safety. So one thing that we have advocated for a long time ago, like just like there's FAA and the NTSB board, they're not the same people that approve the planes. When there's an accident, you know, they send in and they go through and investigate. We need something like that. We need separate departments that is solely in um, their job is not to be anything caught up with the FDA approval process. And when you start another fact that I didn't know, but now know, um, it's this whole that 42% of, and I think it's 42, it might even go higher, but of the FDA app, um, budget comes from pharmaceutical companies. And it's part of the Prescription Drug User Fee Act, PDUFA, which basically is something that the FDA, um, with every application the drug industry puts in, it has a, a price tag. And that is so it helps to get their drug. It was during the AIDS crisis when the FDA was under attack for not approving drugs fast enough. And, you know, the, um, the budget um, was down. So this was what was created, um, PDUFA. And it's a, and then there's one, GDUFA, which is a generics and PDUFA. You know, they've got one for every devices have one, the vaccines have one, or biologics have one. And uh, they, it's a, every five years, it's a must pass. And usually, guess who's running and who's in control. Like we're trying to always throw in drug safety measures, like, all right, well, let's have more post-market monies, you know, put some of the budget to post-market, but who's, who's control of those conversations? It's pharma with the FDA. You so. are, you are correct. It was a $5.9 billion budget. 45% comes from user fees and, uh, that agreement it's in effect through September of 2022. So this is the month where that could be renewed again for another five years, potentially. Yep. And it is. And that's one of the things that's in there. It's a lot around um, innovation and innovation is a buzzword in my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, it's everybody's innovation. We're all about technology. We're all about innovation, but innovation then, you know, I always, that's another like thing I've always tell people, you know, you might not want to take the newly innovative product. Like innovation doesn't necessarily mean, it's the late, you know. This, this is a good, seg good segue, Kim. So I was just recently listening to you on the Wayne Dyer podcast. And uh, I, he's interesting because I remember him uh, just telling a story about the differences between ducks and eagles. And it's the, uh, the duck is the, uh, you know, following in the line, just, you know, just on the ground, just seeing what's in front of you, step by step, almost, you know, automatic without much thinking. And I believe we're in dangerous times because we are coming out of 2020 and the COVID pandemic. And it was really 
uh, a, a research investigation into the nature of human beings. And what we saw were plenty of ducks and not a lot of eagles. The eagles soaring up can see the big picture. And I think it's mostly about, about fear. And, you know, I, I lost a lot of arguments in, in my family at that time. I think a lot of people, you know, based on fear, they just wanted to blindly trust. And there was this blind obedience to do what you were told. And you saw the same kind of marketing tactics that Big Pharma has used uh, in, in, with previous uh, psychiatric drugs and other drugs the government was employing similar kind of uh, marketing tac- tactics. One that, you know, creates a lot of uncertainty, right? Well, you might not, um, you might have gotten COVID, even though you have a quote-unquote vaccine, and you might, it might not stop you from, you know, transmitting the virus, but it's going to prevent death and, and hospitalization, something you would never be able to, to, to confirm. So people like me who been investigating some of this research and been in the mental health field for a couple decades, automatically pumped the brakes on, on this. This is a novel virus. This is novel mRNA, quote unquote, vaccination. So they're using the language as if it's a vaccine. So even though it's very difficult to call it a vaccine, it's almost like it's an intervention, really. It's, it's, a, it's a therapeutic with um, new technology. But everyone just assumed that this was uh, a vaccine. We've been using vaccines for centuries. If you don't use a vaccine, you're an anti-vaxxer. You're a, you're a science denier. So you can then split people into categories. So you're either following the crowd, quacking along like everybody else. And if you step out and you're an eagle and you take a bigger picture perspective on these things, well, then you're automatically labeled as someone who's crazy. You know, and I'm sitting across from my brother because he's one of those guys. He was quacking so much, it was difficult to even hear anything else coming out of the out of his mouth, but the quack. I, I mean, it's an obnoxious quack. And so, unfor- you know, unfortunately, he's had to have a wake-up call by being with me and on this podcast, and, and I think you're messing with his worldview right now. He's probably going to have nightmares tonight. But I do believe that, it, that there is a... a an evolutionary process that exists for us, that, that we can be open to the harms that are created and not be down on all of humanity, that we can recognize that there can be a kind of a distancing that exists from, from human empathy. And that's what, you know, that's what happens in, within industry. Human lives don't matter, and they just become you know, kind of dollar signs, collateral damage. Could you give us your thoughts and your opinions on, on, on COVID vaccines and, and, what, and things we just have gone through? I know you've been part of this process, what we've just gone through uh, the past couple of years with, with mandates and so forth. Yeah, well, um, for sure. I always say, you know, fear is the enemy of health. Um, but, you know, so fear literally when the last two years has been crazy and never in a million years did I think I would ever be stepping into that territory. But a couple of things went off for me and I think it's because of all my work, you know, just this idea of innovation and being, you know, like just this idea of wanting the latest fast, you know, we want, we trust, we want the latest. I think there was so much fear of like um, grandma, you know, 
first of all, your own death. And I think if, you know, we didn't know what it was, um, especially in the initial, and then it became, you know, fear of, um, grandma. And if you don't take care of things, then it became all of a sudden you start watching when the vax, um, vaccines were rolling out and just looking at the clinical trials. And I was like, wait, they're, they haven't even been tested. Like, and everybody out there is saying all of the people, you know, whoever, you know, the, the leaders or the ones that had the voice were saying they're completely safe and effective. You had, you know, you had influ- um, influencers, like I'll never forget watching um, Richard Branson on an Instagram, getting the vaccine live and saying, it, do do this for people. This is about humanity. It is completely safe and effective. And I'm like, what are these guys all saying completely safe and effective? We don't know that it's completely safe and effective. And then knowing when they gave all of the placebo group in the clinical trials, they gave the placebo group the opportunity because it was the humane thing to do. They gave them the vaccine. So you took away the control group. So really there was no control group in the clinical trial. And then you start watching, you know, you brought up some of my favorite things, the language of, you know, you look at the antidepressants and you look at all of drug ads and they're very carefully worded. Like it may help. Yeah. It might. It, you start using all of those languages and you're like, oh yeah, this is the same thing. Then, you know, I remember the first, they were using tactics. The government was using companies too, but um, they were using tactics like bring in your vaccine card. And you can get a free donut a day at Krispy Kreme. That was yeah. the first one. I'm like, free French what? fries. Like, I thought this was about yeah. health. You know, then I started watching. Um, I started, you know, every time like I t- was starting, I was telling you about one of the drugs we were looking at um, on my committee and I about off label. And so you started that question, you know, earlier about off label. And I remember the one Parkinson psychosis um, drug, I went and looked up and listened to what Wall Street had to say. And a lot of the analysts said that, that drug had the potential to be 2 to $3 billion off-label year, um, a drug every single year. So I remember saying to the FDA, like, well, how do we know, how do we stop FD, you know, off-label potential use of this? And then they would say, well, we're not in the business of off-label. But then come COVID, when people were using some of the drugs that were on the market um, off-label, all of a sudden the FDA stepped in and issued letters saying nobody can use it. Um, and it's because if there was a drug on the market that could have possibly treated, you couldn't get the emergency use vaccines. Then you put in the litigation, you know, obviously you put in the litigation, you completely made those companies um, have no immunity or have immunity so that if anybody was injured, they're on their own. And so all of that together just got me thinking like, there's something bigger that's happening here. Like, you know, even I think, and then, you you know, then you look at the censoring that's been happening. And and if you even question, you're automatically even, you know, it's tearing people, families apart, social groups apart. Like I just got invited to a wedding that I can't go to, you know, like they're, they still are saying if you're not vaccinated, like there's all of these things that, you know, two years later and, you know, it almost feels like it was, you know, I'd like to not think it was evil, but like there's so much evil in it 
that we're forgetting about the humanity of people and even the people who've been injured. Um, and I've been working and have met them and they can't even tell their story. They're being censored. They can't even be, they did the right thing, which government asked and now nobody's helping them. Mm -hmm. And so they're left on their own. And that's not a small group. It's a pretty large group and growing. And so all of that is to say, um, those are all things I learned. That's how my mind saw things from, and I like how you brought Wayne into it because he was like one of my favorite, um, the ducks and the eagles. I forgot about that <laughs> analogy. And I think that's a really interesting one. Um, so. so I want to go back to the ducks and the eagles because. Why is that, Sean? <laughs> I got called and labeled a duck. And, you know, Roger's very strategic in how he attacks me sometimes. He likes to follow it up with a question. So I never have a chance to respond. <laughs> and actually, I really, uh, I'm glad because it transitioned into something that I think is, is really important. And I wanted to hear more from Kim, less from Roger. And, <laughs> and, and the idea of the fast tracking of the clinical trials to me, it just blows my mind. Because I, I do recall what happened during the, uh, the COVID vaccine was that they did come out and they said clinical trials were so successful to, to continue and delay this vaccine for any longer would just be inhumane. It would do more harm. Well, at one so, point they said it was almost 100%. You weren't going to make efficacy. Yeah, it was, that's what we were told immediately when they came out. Of course. And, yeah, and I remember it was the, um, and it was, well, basically what they were doing is going back to your um, original point earlier about ghostwriting. They were using the company preprints as, um, which was their, summary of the clinical trials as proof that they worked and author were given authorization. There was one thing that I remember where they said that was almost, I think it was Wall Street Journal that reported it was a hundred percent effective in black community. I was like, well, was there any black in the, um, in the trial? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and, and the other thing is they kept saying that it reduces your risk of hospitalization, but without a, like a, a strong control, placebo group how do you make that determination like that was always you know that was always a challenge for me to try to understand what that meant and i, I think that's a lot of the reasons why people did take smart people like uh you know smart people that i know scientific people uh you know colleagues of mine they believe that it would reduce their their overall risk but just didn't ask the questions they just want to accept it because i do i'm sorry to pick on you sean but there is something that is threatening to the idea that uh, government or industry is not working in, uh, you know, on our behalf, thinking about our, our health and caring about us. We're almost conditioned to believe that all these things are safe or they wouldn't even be available. That's true. Uh, there's a bias there. We've mm -hmm. had discussions about this. So I'm, I'm interested in this because I have a brother who was aware of what was happening with the pharmaceutical trials and he had concerns and he was expressing those concerns to to me and to my family but yet we weren't mm -hmm. listening to him so kim as as a marketing professional someone who now does consulting of how to train people in the media you know what is the best approach where we can communicate these things in a very clear understandable way that doesn't feel threatening that doesn't feel like you're putting someone down and almost calling them a duck yeah. <laughs> in a way that totally. we're actually receptive to hear it and take a step back and critically evaluate for ourselves 
Well, it's a good question. I think anytime it's hard, especially when it's family, to go, you are a duck. You know, it's a lot easier to Yeah, I grew up with this guy, so I I ignore him more often. (laughs) But it doesn't work to call other people because, you know, I always think you got to assume people are smart. Um, You got to assume that people want to do the right thing. But I think it is this idea that we have to be willing to take a step back and we have to be willing to ask the questions and we have to be willing to hear and be, I always say um, it's a little bit of like doing personal transformation work, right? That you have to be, you have to be willing to maybe admit that what you thought was right. Isn't right. Does it, or at least be, or at least be willing to explore what if I've been told, you know, the things that I've been told aren't right, Mm -hmm. or maybe there's a different thing or this idea of why can't it be both? And I say it all the time. Yes. Why can't something be both? And it could be, it might work, but it can also kill people and hurt people. It can be both. And, but we've come into this, like, you know, completely. And I don't, you know, politics doesn't help this. No. You know, I keep going back to looking at, you know, this all happened during the Trump administration. It was fast tracked. You know, we had a buy, you know, we had this virus out of control, but then, and then you would look at the president or, you know, candidate Biden and candidate um, Kamala and how they were like, no way. I, I do not trust this. It, this is Trump's vaccine. I need to know what the ingredients are. We know, we don't know anything about long-term safety. We don't know all of the things that truthfully, are the things that we should have all been asking. Mm-hmm. And, but as soon as politics changed, all of a sudden it became like, oh, it's completely safe. Um, it's going to be mandated. We're going to make everybody take it or you're going to lose your job. You know, it became this whole different ugly thing. And, and I go back to the questions that the candidates were do, asking, even if it was political because it was Trump's, they were actually the kind of questions we all should be asking, like, whoa, this is pretty fast. Mm-hmm. What if, you know, like informed consent, like there was no informed consent. You know, I bet most people who um, took the shot, did they know that if something should happen to them, there is no legal recourse? Do they know that they can't even go through the traditional vaccine compensation court? It was something called the comp- um, the countermeasure program. I bet nobody knows that. And nobody was told that. I bet... You know, these are things that, you know, even asking like, um, what if, and I don't know the answers, I'm not a scientist, you know, I'm not the scientist, but it just makes me like, well, why can't you question anything without being all of a sudden labeled something? Like that to me involves a lot of what I have been, um, you know, working with, with labeling mental health stuff, right? Oh, you're labeled or you, you know, once you tell somebody that they have, you know, whatever disorder, they believe it and they become it, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think labels are really um, dangerous. And so I think watching this whole thing play out, you, we weren't even able to question without automatically quickly being an anti-vaxxer, quickly being anti-science or, you know, I had been through that with antidepressants where I was called a Scientologist yes, and I was like, literally every name has been called and we didn't have social media then. And that was just comments on people like on 
you know, the newspapers, they'd be like, oh, she's a Scientologist. I'm like, I am. Well, that's great. Just like, you know, now being called like I'm an anti-vaxxer. Well, I guess you are if you're, um, you know, they've changed the definition of vaccine. So these are things that I think people also need to be aware of. And not if, even if they like want to do it, believe it and all that, it doesn't even matter, but they should be wondering, why are we changing definitions? Mm -hmm. Like, why are we conveniently, like, there should just be a sense of curiosity and anything to do with products that have, um, when there's money involved and large money and control involved, we should be asking questions. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned I don't know if that answered your question or not. But. Yeah, no, you did. Cause, and you, you said an important word, which was transformation, like to question that the things you believe may not be true. You have to go through a transformation and that takes time. It doesn't happen in a sit down dinner with a family member having a conversation. It could take six, eight, 10 months, 12 months, two years. Eventually you get exposed to enough information that you are questioning and you are yeah. starting to realize for yourself that the things you believe to be true may not be true. It's either this or that. So yeah. this is leading to, to my next question. Is, Hold on a second oh, here. Go ahead. Yeah, don't go more into questions. <laughs> Wait, no, you do that to me, so I wanted to silence you. <laughs> we, can, we can have some dialogue here. All right, so Kim makes a great point about these labels because it's how you're discredited, right? If you are an anti-vaxxer or you have a psychiatric diagnosis, you are now minimized, mm -hmm. right? It's not about addressing your argument. It's not about addressing the evidence. You're now less than as a person and you're put into a group and you're automatically devalued. And so that what, that's what happens in these very difficult discussions because it doesn't matter how much evidence you have or engaging in the conversation, the person is not open to hearing it because it is too threatening. Because if you went and got the vaccination, now you have to deal with that emotionally. So what happens if there's dangerous consequences to this? We don't really know what happens long term. We're not going to get into it on this podcast, but there's certainly rising yeah. data and concerns. People don't understand that a medical intervention can increase the likelihood of you developing the disease or the condition. It can increase vulnerability. People didn't know what mRNA technology was. They weren't educated on it. So they went and do it automatically. Now they have to justify it. And to do it, they have to also raise their, their inherent value in society. I am a good person. I did something for the collective well-being of everybody else. And therefore, if you don't, there's something about you that is less than. So I will devalue you with a label, but we'll never get into the argument. That's, I mean, that you have a point there, but yes, what people have done in the past cannot be undone, but what they can do now are, are make choices. The choices you make moving forward is really what's important. If you stay stuck and with your feet in the sand and you're digging your heels in, you're saying, I've made this decision and I'm going to stay strong in that position. That's, that's not really being dialectical. That's not having the, uh, it's either mm -hmm. this or it could be both things, right? And as more information comes out, you have a responsibility to educate yourself. Now you're sounding like an eagle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a turkey vulture. <laughs> no, I love that because that's, you know, so I always, I still um, love to be more from the positive, you know, like what is the good that has come out of COVID? Yes. And I think the good that will eventually have come out of COVID is a huge light has been shot. Um, you know, the everything's been broken open. And I think 
it is making everybody second guess, question like the pharma. Um, you know, I think people will, to your point, maybe they did just rush to do something without waiting and seeing. Maybe now they'll take a pause, ask some questions, and then do it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'll say, no, you can't force this. We don't know what's going to happen. And maybe they'll stick up for themselves and for people versus just instead of bashing and saying that you're this, I'm that. And I think there, and I do believe that there are people to this day that it, the the cognitive dissonance is just so great. And then to hear that there's potential stuff with these drugs or the, the um, COVID injections that potentially could come down the road. Nobody wants to hear that because that's scary. Like to me, that now is scary because now you're like, Oh my God, did I do this to my body? You know, did I make this choice and now I have to live with this. And so I think there is some of that where it'll be easier to dig your feet in like, no, 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 that won't happen. So at the end of the day, I think it's still about being curious asking questions and, you know, looking in the mirror and looking in the mirror is everything in our lives and why we've, why did we, why do we believe this? I don't know. Why did we believe this? Because society told us, well, why did we believe that doctors are the smartest? Well, society told, like, it makes us everything. Like, I don't care what it is. You know, I think it's part of that whole uh, personal development transformation that has to start with you first. And I think before it can change the world, you have to be willing to look at yourself Mm -hmm. and where am I at part of this? Well said, Kim, you're an absolute force. I really enjoyed this hour with you. Um, I can't begin to let you know how thankful we are. Where can people find you? Uh, They can find me on Twitter. (laughs) Although I'm being, it seems like it's not, getting as much play lately. Um, but Twitter, um, kimwitzak.com or woodymatters.com. I'm in the process of working on a docu-series called Selling Sickness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there'll be more stuff because I feel like the more information people have, at the end of the day, it's not to scare people. It's about, here's some nuggets. Take what I learned because you don't want to end up where where our family was. And that's why I do and want to keep sharing. And so I really appreciate you guys having me on the, on the podcast. And I love like the debate going back and forth. <laughs> it happens a lot. Before you, uh, before you sign off, can you, uh, uh, let you let us know which one won the debate myself or Sean. Uh, get out of here. Kim, you don't have to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Kim, can we have you on again after the docuseries comes out? Yeah, sure. We can do it whenever. I'm 100%. Um, I love having these conversations. And I think it's really important that people listen, take the time. And people like you that are sharing your uh, your platform with people like me to, you know, help. We all work together. We're all a part of the same. We're all different pieces of the puzzle.
Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.